electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. I am Brian Sullivan. Welcome to The Exchange. Call it the short SPAC attack. All these new investments getting some attention from some short sellers. Will the Reddit rebellion come calling too? Another big wake-up call in the jobs number. The American industry still digging through a depression and why millions of people simply can't go back to work even if they want to. And doggy daycare, free rides, and even paying off your student loans. No, it's, it's not Congress. It's companies. Meet some of the new perks that corporations are using to lure in the top talent. All that plus the top five companies seeing the most insider buying of their own stock this week. Something exclusive only to us. That is all ahead. But let us start on this Friday by hitting your money overall as stocks try to cap out another big week with some very nice gains. Seema Modi's got the latest on all the numbers and the news behind them. Seema. Happy Friday, Brian. This time last week, it seemed like we were going into a week where we would see more volatility, but we're actually on track for the best week since November of last year. We're looking at the S&P 500 and NASDAQ both at record highs. And interestingly enough, if you take a look at the biggest gainers on the S&P for the week, it's names in the leisure and retail space, names like L Brands and Under Armour higher by 19%. MGM Resorts in the casino space up 20% ahead of earnings out next week. So that reopening trade certainly seems to be a part of the conversation. On the flip side, take a look at Peloton. We saw sales top $1 billion. But uh, the company is saying that they need to invest more so they can accommodate the strong demand it is seeing for its bikes. CEO John Foley saying that these investments are needed. And he also said, I don't know if you saw the conversation earlier today on CNBC, Brian, that uh, with the vaccine coming out, they don't see demand slowing down. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, for those of us who have invested in that bike, we're not going to stop using it, are we? Oh, you have a Peloton? I do. I mean, I was convinced by you because I know you're a big fan. Well, uh, yes, I just I was not going to ask you your handle because my stats are too embarrassing. Do you like Same the classes here. or do you like like the mountain rides? I like a mix of both. Cody's my favorite instructor. And if I can just bring it back to the stock for one quick second, I do want to show that even with today's <laughs> drop of 8% because I'm a finance nerd, take a look at the last three months. You've actually seen it, seen a trade in this $150 uh, sort of price range. So we'll see if we can get above that. Obviously, over the last six months, still up about 103%, Brian. Shout out to Cody. By the way, once you have the bike, you're probably going to keep paying that monthly fee or the treadmill, by the way. Seema Modi, once again, wondering why I'm on television. Seema, thank you very much. (laughs) Well, the January jobs number mixed with only 40,000 jobs newly added due to the coronavirus and, of course, restrictions, lockdowns, etc. The unemployment rate falling, though, to 6.3 percent. Participation, though, dropping significantly. 4.7 million people simply prevented from working, even if they wanted to because the pandemic or lockdowns or their kids' school is closed. But despite problems with jobs, the markets are focusing on the positives. Here they are. Here's why the markets have been ripping higher. Number one, you got vaccines up, cases down 50% in a month. You got one to two trillion in stimulus coming. We don't know the number, but some bill will pass. 
You, of course, have the easy Fed, 0% rates and $4.5 trillion in money floating around the globe. And a little bit less sort of obvious, the yield curve. Watch that. Up seven days in a row. We've only had one eight-day run on that yield curve tightening in a decade. Joining us now with more is Michelle Meyer, head of U.S. economics at Bank of America, global research, and Ernesto Ramos, chief investment officer at BMO Global Asset Management. Uh, Ernesto, I'll begin with you. You saw sort of our, not our wall of worry, our wall of ripping. I mean, you got these things that are out there that are all kind of factored in. Is there one of those that's more important to you and your team vis-a-vis the markets? Well, the most important one is one that you didn't mention, which is the earnings growth outlook. Uh, in 2021, uh, the consensus has the earnings for the S&P 500 going up by 30%. And at the end of the day, we think that's what's driving the market higher. You're seeing estimates being revised higher, which has dropped valuations by about four points on the S&P in the last few weeks. So that's really fueling uh, the, 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 the growth in the market right now. And not to mention the ones that you already did talk about. The yield curve is very interesting. The yield curve shows that uh, the growth stock sector might be giving way to value stocks because as yields go up, value stocks come more into play and and small caps and and value stocks. So we think that's an area where you want to make sure you have some exposure to. Okay, yeah, Michelle, would you agree with that? I mean, the yield curve, I know it's a little bit wonky, probably a little bit boring, but it matters a lot to the banks and the financials, which matter a lot to the market. And to Ernesto's point, could it be the push or maybe the result of this kind of rotation that we have seen? So to me, I I think it's important to consider why the yield curve is steeping and what that tells us about the economy currently. Um, the thing in the yield curve, the backup of rates, is a story of stronger growth. It's a story of potential inflation pressures. And it's a story that suggests that the economic recovery is going to pick up speed. And we very much agree with that. We're forecasting 6% growth this year. Um, we think we're going to see a pretty meaningful acceleration, particularly in consumer spending right around the turn of the year, provided, of course, that the, the, the bullet points that you laid out in the beginning end up proving to be right. We get another round of fiscal stimulus. The virus cases continue to come in and, 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 and come, come lower and lower, and, and people feel as though the coast is clear to start engaging in the activities that they hadn't before. Yeah, and how much does the Fed play into that, Michelle? Because let's say that we see a turn and virus cases start to go mm-hmm. up again and uh, things reverse. The Fed... And maybe the Treasury, too, with, of course, Janet Yellen there, they, they've got our back. So it's almost like I feel like we're in one of these, if the news goes bad, don't worry, the Fed has got our back, at least financially. Well, this comes to this idea of the Powell put or the fiscal put, which is, is, is there now as well. You know, if the economy were to weaken, there's a very strong counter from both monetary and fiscal policy. On the monetary side, it would probably just mean that they delay the tapering of, of, of asset purchase. They continue to expand their balance sheet. They kind of re-embrace a much a dovish stance again. And on the fiscal side, if the economy were to weaken, it probably would lead to a larger package and a more timely package. So certainly there's that counter that's really, really important. But in our baseline, um, you know, you, you, you end up seeing what is a very favorable situation, which is kind of this yeah. one-two punch of a low virus number coupled with uh, the accumulation of stimulus. And it's very powerful for the economy. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it has been powerful for the equity markets as well. So Ernesto, where can we make money right now? Is there anything that even appears to be under or maybe fairly valued? Well, I think you, you, you want to get exposure to the broad market, and I would say you want to have some growth, some value, some large caps, some small caps. And we have uh, BMO Global Asset Management as funds in all those categories. The key is not to overpay for the stocks that you're buying because the market is a little bit highly valued. So you want to make sure that the stocks that the funds are buying are, are under the benchmark. So most of our funds trade at three to four points below the respective benchmark. So that's a level of protection in the funds. And one risk that uh, you we haven't focused on is corporate tax rates might be going, going higher as the Democrats now control both houses and, and, of course, the executive. So this is something that fueled the rally when Trump cut taxes. And we think it might be a risk that people are not paying attention because they're giddy with all the other good stuff that we've already talked about. And they're forgetting that there could be a big corporate tax hike on the way. So... Uh, you have to be a little yeah. cautious uh, yeah. and not get too carried away here. Yeah. And Michelle, I want to kind of pivot just a bit because and I'm not going to ask you to dive into politics. Do not worry. None of us needs that right now. But there's a huge <laughs> political debate. Unfortunately, it has become political about schools. OK, now, a lot of schools in America are open. But if you go to the big cities, L.A., Chicago, New York, many schools are closed and maybe for the rest of the year, 4.7 million people dislocated from the workforce, according to the U.S. government. They want to work. They probably can't. Much of that probably has to do with their kids at home. You can't leave your seven-year-old at home alone to go to a job. So have you guys done any work on the importance of schools to the macro economy and the job market? It, it, the linkages that you explain there are spot on, which is that when schools are closed, it means you don't have as much workforce engagement because it's hard for two parents to be out of the home and working. Um, and there's a lot of evidence of that in surveys, and there's a lot of research that's been done on the topic that suggests that is exactly right. So when schools are able to reopen more broadly, which should come with the broader reopening of the economy, I do think that that helps to unleash a lot more labor into the economy. People who are on the sidelines, they're waiting to get back in, and they will do so once the coast is clear. And that has really impacted specifically women. If you look at the labor force participation rate yep. amongst women, particularly prime working age women, it's down much more so than other cohorts. So that's a perfect example of how that could end up kind of resolving itself over time when the economy does indeed reopen more broadly. Yeah, I think there's a million kids between L.A. and Chicago alone as they fight to reopen. Of course, you want to do it safely, so the teachers, but yeah. to your point, there may be a million parents who simply can't go to their job. Because let's be honest, all of us watching CNBC, we can probably zoom in. There are millions of Americans that can't zoom. They're the ones that we see at the store, at the restaurants, and we appreciate everything they do because they're out there every single day. Michelle Meyer, Ernesto Ramos, have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now to another fascinating story developing in the markets. Some short sellers are starting to poke around some of the SPACs, you know, all those blank check companies that are popping up nearly every day. And one big one has a big-time target, Chamath Palihapitiya, and his backed Clover Health, which is down again after a brutal short seller report. Leslie Picker joining us now with the latest on this and the broader push. Leslie. 
Hey, Brian, that's right. Clover publishing a very long response to that report, calling the short seller's report, quote, rife with ad hominem attacks, sweeping inaccuracies and gross mischaracterizations. Among the key findings of the report by short seller Hindenburg Research is that Clover is under active investigation by the Justice Department over a variety of issues, something that was never disclosed to shareholders until that report. Now, that report specifically took aim at Palihapitiya's due diligence chops, Clover acknowledging that it has received a request for information from the DOJ, but not any civil investigative demands or subpoenas. The company said in consultation with outside counsel, they didn't believe it was material to warrant disclosure. The company did note that it received a notice of investigation from the SEC yesterday. Hindenburg a few hours ago tweeting that it is preparing a response to Clover's response. But we're starting to see a trend here, Brian. Short sellers are increasingly targeting companies taking public by SPACs. We saw it with Carson Block's Muddy Waters and Multiplan and with Hindenburg and Nikola before that. A record amount of capital has been raised by these special purpose acquisition vehicles, and now there's about $100 billion sloshing around looking for deals. The short thesis is that the competition can cause SPAC sponsors to ink deals hastily with limited due diligence and higher prices. But their efforts may be complicated by the recent backlash against short sellers. Even Hindenburg, which usually takes short positions, did not do so with Clover, saying that it instead wanted to showcase the, quote, role short sellers play in exposing fraud and corporate malfeasance. Brian. All right, Leslie, stay with us. I want to broaden out the conversation and bring in Mr. Herb Greenberg, partner of Pacific Square Research, CNBC contributor, longtime friend, a guy I miss every day, and also a guy who's been writing about short sellers since John Madden's Raiders were playing in the Super Bowl. <laughs> Herb, it's great to have you this back on. You know, listen, I mean, that as a, you, I mean that as a compliment, my friend, because you and I have been through a lot of battles, Rocker Partners, Taser, remember all that stuff, Overstock.com, the Sith Lords. Talk to us about the role that short sellers often play. They are not, all, sometimes they're bad, but they're not always these anti-American, anti-patriots trying to ruin corporate America, are they? Look, every time I hear that, I, obviously I want to shake my head. It, th th that's probably the most absurd comment I've heard. And my, my response to that is always the same. If you don't want the scrutiny, don't go public. And once you're public, you're a quasi-public organization and you're opening yourself up to scrutiny. After all, these companies file SEC uh, documents. They have filings with the SEC. And those filings have all sorts of inform information. And as I always like to say, you have two people, two very smart people, and they both can come down very differently on how they see the company. And some people don't think the company uh, is all it's cracked up to be, and they take a position against that. That's called short selling. But what they are, Brian, is they're also detectives in the marketplace. And that's not some like hoo-ha. They're out there basically trying to get you ahead of the curve that there may be a problem that may or will have a problem with the stock. And we have so many examples of that. Not that they're always right. Nobody's always right. No long is always right. No short is always right. Things happen. But the reality is you need people and more, policing. They are and, among the ones policing. Yeah, I mean, listen, a lot of these companies, and by the way, we like they come on the air. We like their CEOs. A lot of these companies, Leslie, they've got huge PR departments, right? I mean, they can tell their story. And sometimes it's one or two people that are poking around the balance sheet for a year that are un, some, you know, able to uncover something that is malfeasance or just plain out fraud. 
and the market thanks them later, but at the time, they get attacked. I'm not saying I'm sorry for short sellers at all, but man, some of them just get punched in the gut constantly. Yeah, you have to have a strong stomach to do this, especially the type of work that the Hindenburgs of the world are doing and the muddy waters of the world are doing. And, and notably, last week we saw Citron actually decide no longer to publish short re reports after 20 years of doing so, having been on the opposite side of that GameStop trade, which marked a pretty notable sea change uh, in the small industry that is short sellers these, day, these days. And, and it's worth noting, it is a small small industry, smaller yep. than it's been in recent years. Short interest is a proportion of just the overall market. Is it a 17-year low? There aren't that many people actually even short selling right now, whether it's for hedging purposes or directional bet. Um, and so it's just kind of remarkable seeing these, you know, changes yeah. in response to what we saw last week with GameStop. Yeah. And, you right. know, I guess, Herb, listen, we've learned. Go ahead, buddy. Well, I was just going to say something. When Leslie mentioned the low short interest, the one thing I would point out that people seem to forget in all of this is that the short sellers also provide, you know, they help keep in efficient capital markets and they provide that sort of natural buying when a stock starts to fall because they're going to be there buying. If they're not there, it's a vacuum. It's walking into an elevator shaft while, while looking at your phone and not really realizing the elevator isn't there. You go straight down. And that, I think, is, is one of the is one of the concepts that sort of gets lost in the yeah. in the noise of all this. Okay, Herb, but let me let me flip it a bit. Okay, the sure. reason that the Reddit Army went after GameStop, okay, was because because it had hundred and thirty percent shorted effectively through. And people say, how is that possible? I don't want to go into it. It was a synthetic stuff and you know options, whatever it might be. The SEC is supposed to prevent naked short selling. This was not exactly that, but Herb, do you think there should be <laughs> limits? On, well, not Brian, banning short whoa, whoa, whoa. sellers, but maybe well, first firm of all, caps on the amount of any kind of product that can be percentage short against the float. My, my response to that is go read Reg SHO, which I think was 2005 by the SEC. Go down to, I think it was section yes. D or somewhere. There is a huge section in that Reg SHO, which was designed to prevent short selling that explains how there can be the appearance of naked short selling when there is none. This was a populist idea to sort of glom onto by people who had no idea what they were talking about. And the reality, you know, I don't know what the real short interest in, um, in GameStop was, and I don't really care. But when I see people pulling that number out over and over again without knowing what they're talking about, that's disturbing because they don't understand how the markets work. And I think that there's been very little discussion about that um, in the mainstream media. Well, regulation SHO, Herb, while important, not exactly light reading. And maybe that's why we're not so, exactly getting no. a lot of conversation. No, it's not. Right. Herb, it's great to see no, you, buddy. Not. Miss you every it's great day. Great to see you, pal. You always add a smart voice. Yeah, we'll have you back on. Leslie Picker, awesome stuff as well. Leslie, see you soon. Big story there that is nowhere near being over. Thank you both. All right, coming up, former hedge fund manager, hockey team owner, baseball team owner, and now developer, all one guy, Jeff Vinnick. He's got a lot of titles to his name. He'll join us to talk about his latest investments in one American city. Plus, we're going to name the top five companies with the most insiders buying up their own stocks this week. The top five, something you will not see anywhere else. And it's been a big week for a lot of stocks, but here is the best of the best so far in the Dow. It's Dow, Amex, Visa, 
Cisco, Nike. Big, big weeks. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, welcome back. Well, normally we do this next exclusive segment every Friday on Worldwide Exchange, 5 a.m. Eastern. Check it out live or tape it if it's a little bit too early. But since I'm here today and I think it's important stuff, we're going to do it right here on The Exchange. And that is our weekly insider buying segment, highlighting the five companies with the most insiders buying up their own stock. This isn't stock buybacks. These are individuals with their own money buying their own stock. And as always, the data comes courtesy of insiderscore.com with our gratitude. So here you go. Counting it down. Five, two, one. The fifth most insider buying this week, Alliance Data Systems, ADS. Director buying 410000 worth. Second purchase by the director, by the way, in six months. Number four, TI, Texas Instruments. A board member there buying just under a million bucks worth, 997000 to be exact on that name. The third most insider buying. This is fascinating. Intel's outgoing CEO Bob Swan, that's right, on the way out the door, buying up Intel stock, picking up $1.5 million worth of INTC. Second two are little lesser known names. Second most insider buying, Teledyne Technologies, TDY, a director buying $3.5 million worth. By the way, he had recently sold about the same amount, so this was a complete 180 reversal on Teledyne. That is a stock to watch. And the most insider buying this week is little talked about and little heard of MSC Industrial Direct, ticker MSM. No, not mainstream media. Long Island-based maker of cutting tools and such. A board member there, a former CEO, by the way, buying $5.2 million. And get this, according to Insider Score, the last time this former CEO bought MSN was 2008. Wow. So there you go. The top five companies with the most insider buying, ADS, TI, Intel, Teledyne, and MSC, Industrial Direct, MSM. We've been doing this for a few months now, and the stocks we've highlighted, and there are many, have as a basket outperformed the overall market. All right, coming up, no industry has been ravaged like the restaurants, COVID, lockdowns, and labor costs expected to go up speak with one of the biggest barbecue chains in the country about what they're seeing on the road ahead. And don't forget, if you are getting out or getting anywhere, then watch us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back. Dow's up 90.
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. Well, not sure if you've heard, but there's a big football game this Sunday. The Kansas City Chiefs and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers facing off in Super Bowl 55, which is also being held in Tampa Bay. So is there anything Tom Brady really can't do? Because it's not just about Tampa Bay, as they're calling it, and football. The city, which is booming, is now bringing in some big buck new developments. And Diana Olick joining us now with a closer look at a very special guest. Diana. Well, Brian, Tampa just ranked as one of the top five housing markets for 2021, according to Zillow, clearly propelled by the work from anywhere world of the pandemic. But developers were already taking big bets on the city. A three and a half billion dollar downtown development broke ground in 2016 and is still going up. A million new square feet of office space, as well as a million of retail and hotel and residential. Water Street Tampa is from a partnership between Bill Gates and Jeff Vinnick. Vinnick also happens to own the Stanley Cup winning Tampa Bay Lightning, and he's here to talk about it all. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. I got to say the landscape for construction and development has changed dramatically during COVID from equipment delays to labor issues and a real spike in the price of building materials. How has that hit your project? Um, it, it has, and we've been underway under construction for about two, three years now. And uh, so we have locked in a lot of our materials. Labor actually has eased up a little bit. So, uh, you know, we got about four or five million square feet of uh, our phase one, which is a bit, little bit over $2 billion. And uh, this is all coming out of the ground now. Actually, it's, it's being topped off now. And 15 months from now, we're going to have 1,000 new residential units. We have 500,000 square feet of office, USF Med School, two new hotels, a four-star and a five-star, uh, retail, uh, galleries, the whole thing. So... Uh, we are very excited with where we're at, and uh, we're opening soon. Yeah, but of course, timing is everything. And as you talk about millions of square feet of office, retail, it's a time when those two sectors are really struggling badly. What are you seeing in the leasing? We're seeing uh, outstanding interest. Um, you're right. Uh, these are uh, uh, very difficult times economically. A lot of people are hurting. Uh, but the fact of the matter is for the overall U.S. economy and certainly for the Tampa Bay economy, uh, this is kind of a 18-month uh, setback on very strong growth. I'm extremely bullish about the overall economy looking at over the next 10 years. And I'm even more bullish about the Tampa Bay economy. People are moving in here right now at a rate of 2 to 3% a year. You combine that with um, you know, the construction, the activity that's going on here. You're looking at nominal growth in Tampa Bay, Florida, about 7% plus over the next five to 10 years. That is a booming economic growth. We are going to lead the, co the country in the amount of economic activity. And, you know, great partner I have in Cascade Invest Investment, Bill Gates Company, and um, they see it, too. Uh, this is the place to be. And um, we're so fortunate to have this Super Bowl to be able to broadcast to the world what they're missing by uh, not doing business here and moving to Tampa Bay, Florida. Now, even before the pandemic hit, Water Street Tampa was given, was the first community to be given the well designation from the Well Building Institute. Now, given how the hyper-focus now 
What does that really mean physically when people are looking at wellness and health, and how does that attract tenants? Yeah, uh, it's kind of driven in, uh, driven the interest in tenants and residents in wellness into hyperdrive. I mean, people already were moving in that direction, uh, very strongly in that direction before COVID. And we've designed all our buildings as well as our overall district to meet the well-building standard, which, uh, you know, which has really higher standards for, for air quality, for water quality, for um, uh, water features in the district, for uh, trying to cut down on pollution, for having fruit, for having, doing a lot of walking inside buildings, overall walkability, bike paths, water fountains, you name it. And uh, we are the first uh, well-certified community in the world. And, um, you know, it's all about quality of life to everybody we're bringing here. Again, whether it's office workers, people who are living here, people staying in the hotels, this is going to be a very uh, distinctive district and, uh, you know, leading to a very vibrant downtown Tampa and a very vibrant Tampa Bay. Hey, Jeff, it's Brian Sullivan. Uh, appreciate you joining Diana and joining us here on CNBC. There's obviously a lot less, a lot going on. Ybor City, by the way, is fantastic. Jimmy's Tacos, I'll just throw that out there. That, that aside, uh, we're talking a lot about wealth taxes in the United States now, obviously state taxes as well. Do you think that this work from home thing that we're doing, while may not lasting permanently for everybody, is just going to accelerate this move? Because if you layer the wealth tax on top of that, you, you can't avoid the federal government, but you can avoid a state government. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I don't want to speculate on politics and wealth taxes, things like that. On the work from home movement, uh, no doubt five, ten years from now, there will be more hours worked at home than there were pre-pandemic. I still think uh, having a central office location, uh, there's no substitute for person-to-person -person interaction stimulative, uh, uh, the collision of ideas to create better, uh, you know, to, to, to create better projects and uh, stimulate thinking. Uh, I still think that's an essential part of business. Um, so, uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I, wealth tax or no, uh, very bullish on the opportunities. Well, you may not want to touch this next one either, Jeff, but I'm going to ask it because you, you and I were both around and you were just rolling it in the hedge fund back then. Do you see any similarities between now and 1999? So let me give a preamble before I cautiously answer that question. So my preamble is I'm incredibly bullish on the economy over the next 10 years. And I know people have been hurt by COVID, very sympathetic to that. But I think things are going to get a lot better. And I think the biggest theme we're looking for is for, for finally Main Street is going to beat Wall Street. So that means more equality, more jobs, better paying jobs. I think all the trends are going in that direction. Um, in terms of uh, just the overall market environment, I think we definitely have pockets of activity that rival 1999-2000. There is huge speculation going on in some areas of the market. Uh, maybe I'd even call it a mania in some areas of the market. So I think you do have to be very cautious. But overall, when we have a really strong economic, a good economic outlook, I think in general for companies that make money and have good long-term prospects, I think they're just going to be fine in the market. Well, and Jeff, just jumping off that, the retail trading community is more engaged than ever thanks to apps on our phones. What warnings do you have for this new generation of traders? Yeah, you know, I, I, capitalism is a great a great thing and markets are a great thing 
and every so often they kind of break or things a little bit. And that just goes with the territory. And I think the phenomenon we had a couple of weeks ago where stocks got squeezed, uh, shorts got squeezed, and stocks went way above their economic value. Um, I, I, I think that was just one of these things where things went a little bit, uh, got a little bit out of hand, and some got hurt by that. My fear is those retail investors who are fueling it, they couldn't all buy low and sell high. It just doesn't work that way. So I'm hoping that, you know, my fear is that a lot of them have gotten burned by that, actually bought high and sold low lost quite a bit of money, and they may not want to come back to the market. They may have a bad experience. So I hope that uh, people didn't get hurt by putting, you know, their, their finger, touching their fingers down on the frying pan. But, you know, that, again, that's kind of, I wouldn't call it a sideshow. It's real money and real activity. But the bigger picture uh, is um, a really strong goods produce. We have an economic boom going on right now, goods producing. Service side of the economy is in the tank. As more people get vaccinated and we come out of COVID, that's going to that's gonna, uh, turn up. And we have a ton of stimulus uh, uh, that's already occurred that's in the pipeline. We have a trillion and a half dollars of savings. We are set up for just dynamic, strong economic growth over the next two, three, five years. It's, I think uh, we have an economic boom right at our doorsteps. And that's a great place to leave it, though. Jeff Finnick, thanks so much for joining us. Brian, back to you. Yeah, you know, Diana, too, if you look at like the U-Haul truck rates going down to Florida, the cost is often triple what it is going north. I think, Diana, everybody's heading south. Whether or not they're going to stay there forever, we don't know. But when there's two feet of snow on the yeah, ground and it's the 74 and there's no state taxes. Yeah, it's a big deal. And, Diana, big interview. We appreciate you bringing it to the exchange. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up, the vaccination push plows on. J&J, one step closer to having their vaccine hit the market and the Biden administration sending in the National Guard to help, literally. Stories coming up. Plus, total student loan debt in America now topping a staggering $1.7 trillion. Some in Congress want it canceled. Corporate America also stepping up to help. We'll give you details ahead. And welcome back to The Exchange. Hope you're having a good Friday wherever you might be. The markets right now are having a pretty good Friday. Not great. They were up 196 in the Dow. They're now up just about 100 points. But still, it's been a nice week for stocks. In fact, this week, the Nasdaq is up more than 6%, one of its best weeks in a long time. As far as the sectors that are doing well, well, you got materials, consumer staples, and consumer discretionary sort of leading the way there as well. Communication services up as well. IT, the only sector, by the way, in the red. And it would not be a show without showing you GameStop. That stock jumping a little bit today, of course, after just a wild few days, really a week of trading. Stock's fallen 81% this week, but of course it rocketed higher last week. GameStop right now up about 11.5%. All right, let's step out of the stock market, and get a check on some of your top world and national news. For that, Sue Herrera and a CNBC News Update. Sue. Good to see you, Brian. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The Pentagon is deploying more than 1,100 active duty troops to five COVID vaccination sites. Two locations will be in California, with troops set to arrive there in a little bit more than a week. Virginia lawmakers have voted to repeal that state's death penalty. The bill now goes to Governor Northam, who is expected to sign it into law and make Virginia the first southern state to end capital punishment. 
Workers at an Amazon warehouse in Alabama will get to vote on whether they should unionize. The National Labor Relations Board has denied Amazon's motion to halt that election. Ballots will start going out on Monday. And fashion designer Peter Nygaard has been de denied bail by a Canadian judge. Nygaard faces extradition to the U.S. on nine charges of sex trafficking and racketeering. He denies the allegations. You are up to date, Brian. I will send it back to you. All right, Sue Herrera, thank you very much. Now let's get the very latest on the fight to get everybody vaccinated. Johnson & Johnson officially requesting emergency use authorization from the FDA for its COVID vaccine candidate. Now, if approved, this would be the third vaccine in the U.S. market. It would not only boost the overall supply of doses, but could also simplify vaccinations for many because it's only one dose and does not need to be kept at negative 70 degrees Celsius. Now, overall, the pace of shots in arms has picked up dramatically. Right now, more than 57 million doses have been distributed, 35 million of those administered. Remember, there's a lot of logistical log jams. Now, of those, nearly 30 million have received one dose, and about seven have had both. A little back-of-the-envelope math, and about 10.9% of the American population over the age of 18, because that's how the census breaks it out, has been vaccinated. That far number, by the way, is the number to watch. There's your daily vaccination update. By the way, the pace is about 1.4 million shots in arms every day. All right, coming up, with student loan debt topping 1.7 trillion, employers are taking steps to help workers pay off their loans. Sharon Epperson will join us with a look at how much help is really being offered and how it could also help bridge the racial divide. And as we head to break, February is Black History Month, and we are honoring some of our CNBC friends and contributors here is contributor Tiffany McGee with her personal story about taking risks. When I was about five years old, my dad quit his corporate job to be an entrepreneur. So the next day, he went and sold hats and gloves on the street corner in the middle of a snowstorm. He eventually grew his businesses into two retail stores. He taught me how to take risks. And now, with the launch of my new firm, Pivotal Advisors, I'm the first African-American woman, first Afro-Latina, to have an institutional investment advisory OCIO firm in the country. Well, student loan debt in the U.S. is still on the rise, topping $1.7 And the gap in that debt held by black against white borrowers is also growing. But some employers and the federal government are taking steps that could try to lessen the burden and bridge that racial divide. CNBC's Sharon Epperson is here and has more. All extra money goes towards the loan. 31-year-old Aaliyah Gibson, a human resources specialist for New York Life, spends a third of her budget paying off her student debt. But she's not tackling her college loans alone. She's getting help from an often untapped source, her employer. The program pays out $10,200 over the course of five years, and it's $170 per month. According to the Society for Human Resource Management, about 8% of organizations offer student loan repayment assistance as an employee benefit. 
Vault, a leading technology platform that helps companies navigate that process, says employers now have a new incentive. Now is a perfect time for employers to intervene. That's because the COVID-19 relief package that passed last December now allows employers to make contributions of up to $5,250 a year to their employees' student debt, tax-free, through 2025. Employees don't have to pay taxes on those contributions either. And Gibson says there's another big bonus. You, one, are saving money on not paying interest, and you're paying down the principal, which is the name of the game to paying off your student loans. Borrowers got a break from accruing interest and making monthly payments on their federal student loans, starting in March under the CARES Act. And after one of President Biden's first executive orders, that pause will now last until at least October 1st. But it's temporary relief. A pause only delays the inevitable, which is the student loan debt still exists. And can play a significant role in future wealth. Studies show black young adults start their careers with more student debt than whites, and that disparity grows over time, as white borrowers pay down their debt faster. The impact? The average net wealth of older white millennials with a bachelor's degree is 10 times more than blacks in this age group. Having employers, government, and individual borrowers work on paying down student debt is a strategy Gibson hopes can help close the racial wealth gap. For people like myself and other people of color, this helps to close that gap tremendously because once again, you are able to take control over your financial situation. As companies compete to attract the best, most diverse workforce, Volt CEO Romy Parzik says offering student loan repayment assistance can also be a powerful incentive for retention and recruitment. And advocates are also pushing for Congress to make the tax incentives around the employee benefit permanent. Maybe that will encourage more companies to offer it as well, Brian. Yeah, I mean, heck of a story, Sharon. So a quick question, follow up. Are there other ways that companies, bosses are helping workers pay off their student loan debt other than the ones that you just laid out? Well, in addition to this pandemic time that we're seeing with direct payments being made, some companies are actually taking paid time off that has not been used and using that money to allow employees to put that toward their student loan debt. There is also another really innovative idea of allowing people to pay down their student loans on their own, but then that money that they're contributing, that percentage of their payroll that goes to student loan debt, their company will match their 401k contribution, put money into their 401k at that percentage so that they're not missing out on building their financial future while they're paying, paying down their current debt. Yeah, I'll, ne I'll never forget going out for beers with some of my law school classmates, Sharon, and a classmate of mine um, showed me her student loan debt. Undergrad in law school was over $300,000. Yep. I often think about where she is. I should follow up with her. Sharon Epperson, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Great and important story. Sure. All right, on deck. While parts of the country are in a recession, many parts of the restaurant industry remain in a full-blown depression. Your next guest runs a huge restaurant chain. She'll tell you what she wants Congress to do about it. Well, really, no industry, maybe hotels, has been hit as hard during the pandemic and lockdowns as the restaurant business. While the food services sector saw big job declines in January, 
Losses pale in comparison to the nearly half a million jobs lost in December in travel, leisure, and hospitality. Now, the proposed $1.9 trillion relief bill could provide some much-needed help. But with Joe Biden's $15 minimum wage proposal on hold, at least for now, a lot of restaurants are really concerned about the future. Joining us now is Laura Ray Dickey. She runs Dickey's Barbecue Restaurants. They have more than 500 locations, 44 states, and multiple, in fact, two in the United Arab Emirates, as a matter of fact. Laura Ray, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, a lot of members of Congress and their aides and lobbyists watch CNBC all day long. You've got a direct platform to them as a representative of the restaurant industry. What would you like Congress to know about your business? Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I think I would love Congress to know that there's a real opportunity to help the industry, to make a direct impact on our workers, on our, on our industry directly with, uh, for example, targeted aid that specifically helps the industry. Any sort of tax credits, any sort of uh, payroll tax or incentives in that regard. And also after prioritizing our first responders and vulnerable populations, then prioritizing uh, frontline workers in the industry for vaccines would greatly help restore consumer confidence. You know, your, your restaurant's unique, okay? Because I know that you have some that are more dine-in than others. Can you mm -hmm. talk to us about the difference running a restaurant between you know, a sit-down Dickies, I think you have one in New Jersey, Egg Harbor Township, and, a, and mm -hmm. sort of a more of a takeout in a more open area. It's geographically, things are very, very different in America. They're very different. And that is an absolutely excellent point about why we need uh, such a variety in the type of assistance that will help us out. For example, our business is that type of flexible uh, space. We have indoor space, we have outdoor space, we have dine-in, drive-through, delivery to go. It's one of the reasons that we're doing better than a lot of our competitors and peers in the industry because we have such a digital infrastructure that allows for delivery. That's really where we're seeing our growth in sales. But the folks that just have dine-in business, those are the folks that are suffering the most, especially those that are in the casual dining and fine dining sectors where you have, uh, for example, uh, waiters and waitress style. For us, that yeah. doesn't apply. We come in and have a pitmaster, and you go through after you get your smoked brisket right there in front of you and your sides. Yep. You're queuing through. You're you're paying with the cashier and sitting down, or taking it to go or having it delivered. It's that flexibility that's helped us, yep. but it's also that type of flexibility that many folks don't have, and that's why any type of incentive for relief for the industry is really helpful. Laura Ray Dickey with the restaurant's perspective, and uh, by the way. Making us hungry, too, with Dickie's Barbecue. Look forward to dining in with you <laughs> well, at some point again soon. Thank, right. thank you very much. By the way, I'll be on the, sh the news with Shepard Smith tonight talking about New Jersey opening up just a little bit and going out to dinner tonight. That's it for The Exchange. Have a good weekend, everybody. Power Lunch begins after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.